0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Jeremiah, the seventh chapter. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4, is where we will start. We're returning to our series, a look at the book, where we are summarizing the books of the Bible, book by book, so that you can get a sense of how the Bible fits together. And today we're in the prophet Jeremiah. Here's the key concept today. Jeremiah shows us the heart of a prophet in the time of sadness. Jeremiah, chapter 7, while you're finding it. Imagine this. What would you think of a man who declares himself to be a prophet appointed by God, who walks the streets of Washington, D.C., and persistently proclaims that Iran will be the arm of God's judgment against the United States of America? Imagine every day a torrent of negative and hopeless words seeing Him on the evening news, speaking out against the way that we've interpreted our constitution, the institutions of our nation, and against our way of life. Now, as a good patriot, you, you might begin to have a sense of satisfaction where you hear that there are other prophets who say exactly the opposite and who declare that all is well. You mean it, maybe not even bother to check out their credentials, And it may give you a sense of deeper satisfaction when somebody decides that that cranky old man needs to be thrown in prison. Well, that's a bit of how the people of Jerusalem felt towards Jeremiah as he spoke out. The vast majority thought him to be a crackpot and a crank. But now change the picture. You are the prophet with the call of God to warn your people to warn the nation that you desperately love, that they are about to fall under the wrath of God. And so you speak out. You speak with tears in your eyes and a lump in your throat, but you're hoping against hope that there will be repentance. And when God sees repentance, He will turn away from His wrath. But there is no repentance. Nobody is listening. And disaster is coming. That is the prophet Jeremiah. He prophesied about a hundred years after the fall of the northern kingdom and a hundred years after the words of the prophet Isaiah. What Isaiah predicted, Jeremiah lives through and describes. He lived in Jerusalem. They ought to have taken a lesson from the destruction of the north. and instead of, But instead of fearing the Lord and fearing that outcome, And turning back to the Lord, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have come to believe a lie. And this is the lie. That since the temple of the Lord is housed in the city of Jerusalem, God would never allow destruction to come to this city. With that in mind, go to 7, chapter 7, verse 4. Jeremiah is speaking. He says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He's mocking their superstition that treats the temple like a good luck charm, allowing them to do whatever they want. If they trusted in that, they were absolutely wrong. And where did this lie come from? It came from About 75 years earlier, when it was the Assyrian army which was coming against Jerusalem, not the Babylonians, and the king was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah went to prayer, and he begged God to deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrian army. And you remember the story that the angel of the Lord visited the camp of the Assyrian army, and that thousands were killed that night, and the remnant that remained went back to Nineveh. And that began a rumor that turned into a fixed belief that somehow it was because the temple was in Jerusalem and they would never be defeated. But Jeremiah knows that belief to be false. So here is the setting. At this time in history, Babylon, along with other aligned kingdoms, have, are just about to defeat Assyria. They've come against uh, Assyria in Nineveh. The Assyrian army has retreated westward to Carchemish. And in Carchemish, they regroup. And while that is happening and the Babylonian armies are making their way around the the, the map there, in Egypt, the Egyptians come to understand that the buffer between them and this newly aggressive kingdom of Babylon is Assyria. And if Assyria is done away with, that the Babylonians will march all the way down into Egypt. The Egyptians do not want to fight Babylon on their own soil, and so they muster an army under Pharaoh Necho, and they move northward toward Carchemish to join up with the Assyrian army. But to get there, they have to move through Israel. Josiah is the king in Jerusalem at this time. He is the great-grandson of Hezekiah, and Josiah doesn't like the idea of the Egyptian army marching through his land. So he comes against them with his forces right outside a city called Megiddo on a plain that we call Armageddon. And it was Armageddon for Josiah's army. His army is destroyed. He himself is killed. And Pharaoh Necho's forces continue northward to Carchemish, but now they are weakened And so the joined forces of the Assyrians and the Egyptians cannot defeat the Babylonians. The Egyptians retreat back to Egypt and the Babylonians march through Israel and then into Judah. By the time it's 6.05, they have come into Judah and they begin the first of three waves of deportations. You see, the Babylonians believed the same thing that the Assyrians believed, and that was when you defeat a people, you depopulate the land and bring those people to your nation. And so it starts with the brightest and the best of the aristocracy. And in 6.05, that first wave goes back to Babylon. And in that first wave wave is a young man who we will meet in a few weeks. His name is Daniel. And then they continue on. By 597, there's another wave of people sent back to Babylon as slaves and as laborers and tradesmen. And in that group is a young priest who will be called to be a prophet in Babylon. His name is Ezekiel. And Nebuchadnezzar continues on. He comes to Jerusalem and he places... The ki- and he, and he uh, brings the king, Jehoiachin, back to Babylon as well and places his brother, Zedekiah, on the throne as a vassal king. And, in, and Zedekiah, in 589, in one of those what-were-you-thinking moments, decides he alone and his small army is going to rebel against Babylon. Bad move. Nebuchadnezzar comes back with his troops He leads his armies, and in that time, Zedekiah seeks out uh, Jeremiah, and he asks, is there a word from the Lord for us? And Jeremiah says, yes. The word is surrender. Zedekiah refuses to surrender. He promptly throws Jeremiah in jail, but the army of the Babylon surrounds Jerusalem, and the siege lasts two years, almost two years, nothing in and nothing out. The book of Lamentations, which we will look at next week, is the book that describes what it was like inside the city. Lamentations is Jeremiah's memoirs of the suffering of the people inside that siege. By the time we get to 586 B.C., the walls are breached, the palaces are burned, the temple is pulled down to rubble. The administrative offices are destroyed. Most people are killed. 4,600 male captives are taken back in the third wave wave of captivity along with the temple's wealth. It is total disaster. And on that day, in 586 B.C., the nation of Israel, as an independent government with defined borders, ceases to exist until When? 1948 two thousand five hundred and thirty-four years with just a brief moment under the Maccabees where they're independent but their borders do not exist two thousand five hundred and thirty-four years the nation is gone or at least it is uh, occupied a governor is set up to watch this destitute city and this by the Babylonians and this governor was promptly assassinated And the little remnant that remains in the city flee to Egypt, and they take Jeremiah with them. And that's where he dies. That's the setting of the book of Jeremiah. And here's the content. You need to understand that the book of Jeremiah is a series of speeches given by Jeremiah. And basically, the flow of the book goes like this. Chapters 1 through 38 are the speeches or the prophecies that he gives before the fall of Jerusalem. Chapters 39 through 44 are the prophecies that he gives after the fall to the little remnant of people who are still living in the destroyed city. And then chapters 46 to 51 are prophecies about other nations that it's not chronological, they're just grouped there to show you what Jeremiah said about the nations around them. Chapter 45 stands alone as a message from Jeremiah to his secretary Baruch. And so let's go to the early prophecies, the ones that are before the fall. Go back to chapter 1 of Jeremiah. And in verse 4, he tells us about his call to the ministry of being a prophet. He shows us his credentials, so to speak. Chapter 1 verse 4, this is what he says. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, Sovereign Lord, he said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to, and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. And right there, we see the truth. That God has a plan for persons even when they are unborn. While he was still in the womb of his mother, God already knew what he wanted this man to accomplish for his name. Don't ever doubt that God sees the unborn as persons. He does. He recognizes their worth and he has a plan for them for his glory. And for Jeremiah, it was to speak words of judgment. Now, notice Jeremiah, like Moses, tries to get out of that. That is a tough ministry, you know, and and he doesn't want to do it. But God, in his sensitivity, reassures Jeremiah, I have created you to do this, and I will protect you in it. What I bring you to, I will bring you through. And that's true of your life as well. What God brings you to, he will bring you through. He has designed you to accomplish his will. See, we can hear the same words from our Heavenly Father that Jeremiah heard. I formed you, I know you, I set you apart, I have appointed you. Christian, God formed you, He knows you, He set you apart, He has appointed you to do something that you are designed to do for His glory. It's the exact same truth. But, like Jeremiah, it will not always be easy. God foresees the difficulty. I will protect you. I will rescue you. And so for the next few chapters, you have God making His case against the the nation, Judah, regarding how they have forsaken Him. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 5, there is an important principle established. It runs throughout the rest of the Word of God, and it is ours today. Chapter 2, verse 5, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And what is the principle? You become like what you worship. If you worship that which is material and shallow, you will be materialistic and shallow. If you worship that which is worthless, you become worthless in God's sight. You become like what you worship. And God is saying, my people are worshiping things their hands have made, worthless, and they have become worthless. And he uses that image of this worthlessness, this foolishness, to show how how empty their religion has become. Go down to verse 13 of the same chapter. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I'm the source of life, and yet they turn their back, and they cling to these, these things that are broken. I offer delicious, fresh, living water, and yet they settle for that which is putrid in broken cisterns. This is Jeremiah's message. And by the time we get to chapter 7, go back there again, because we interrupted a sermon there. In chapter 7, Jeremiah is asked to go and deliver the message, in, of all places, from the temple steps. Chapter 7, verse 1. And this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words and say, This is is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. These people are going through the motions of religion, in other words. They're going through the motions of faith. But what they're doing is they're defining things differently in order just to hear what they want to hear. And the religious leaders are just giving them what they want to hear. The priests have the right title, but they don't have the right message they're not proclaiming the truth. They're declaring everything is fine when it is not fine. Turn to chapter to 8, chapter 8, verse 11. Jeremiah speaks directly to the priests. Here is his accusation. Verse 11 They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. It's a gushing wound, and they're trying to put a band aid on it. And people are hearing just what they want to hear. Jeremiah accuses his people. He uses all kinds of different images uh, to do that. The image of an almond tree branch, a boiling pot, the potter at his wheel, baskets of figs, and on and on as you read through the chapters. And one of the symbols he uses is himself. God commands Jeremiah to remain a single man, not to marry, to communicate to the people of Jerusalem that the punishment is near. And it is better not to have a family because destruction is coming. But every once in a while, there are glimmers of hope. He tells us in chapter 25 that even though this punishment is coming, it will not be forever. There is a defined period of captivity coming, and then there will be blessing. And to reassure, to, to, to uh, make a, that, that message more reassuring, Jeremiah, himself, is commanded to go buy property, a piece of property around Jerusalem to give the indication that, you know, we're gonna come back here one day, but in the short run, punishment will follow. So, as predicted, the Babylonian army came. I'd like you to see that in chapter 37. Just go ahead and turn there. We'll move along quickly, but in chapter 37, The Babylonian army comes, as Jeremiah predicted, but then a strange turn of events. You see, the false prophets are even then saying, well, this Babylonian army, they're going to go away, just like the Assyrian army went away. Why? The temple is here. And so they are proclaiming that message. And in chapter 37, what happens is the Babylonian army does go away. And it seems as if Jeremiah was wrong. Now, by, by this time in the story, Jeremiah is a free man. He's no longer in jail. And a guard sees Jeremiah leaving the city gate. He suspects Jeremiah of defecting to the Babylonians because he's been so sure that they're the ones that are going to be the winners. And now it looks like he's been wrong. And so Jeremiah is re-arrested once again. And he's brought uh, before the king chapter 37 verse 16 we pick up the story Jeremiah was put into a vaulted cell in a dungeon where he remained a long time then King Zedekiah sent for him and had him brought to the palace where he asked him privately is there any word from the Lord yes Jeremiah replied you will be handed over to the king of Babylon you wonder why this guy doesn't have any friends right? I mean, don't forget, at this point, the Babylonian army has left. But what they don't know is this. They left because they are completely confident they can come back and destroy Jerusalem anytime they want. They left because they heard that the Egyptian army was mobilizing once again. They simply went south to take care of the Egyptians. When that was done, they returned. And so by the time we get to uh, chapter 39, what seemed too good to be true is indeed too good to be true. The Babylonians are back, and this is the story. Verse 1, this is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year, the city wall was broken through. And when it is clear that the city is defeated, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who has Jeremiah released from prison. Now right there, if the story ended right there, you would think that God had forever forgotten His people. And you would question the fairness of it all, right? I mean, as bad as the Israelites were, the Babylonians were worse. These were pagan, warlike people, an evil culture, just completely set on destroying anybody around them. But the story doesn't end there. And all along the way, uh, uh, Jeremiah has been laying down these hints that you have to go through these waters, but there is a blessing ahead. And so in Jeremiah 33, we read, I'll put it on the screen. In the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted "...inhabited by neither men nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the voices of those who bring thank-offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever." That is the future, but in the present, they are receiving judgment and punishment, the next few chapters, chapter 40 through 44, it's out of order. It's not chronologically placed. It is the statement of uh, Jeremiah's prophecies against the... Uh, the uh, um, oh, I, should, I wish I should back up. Chapters 40 through 44 is, are the last events in the chronology of the book. Uh, remember I told you the governor is placed over the little remnant that remains. The governor is assassinated, and when he's assassinated, the people come to Jeremiah, and they say... Uh, Jeremiah, what should we do? Should we stay living in this destroyed city or should we go to Egypt where we think we'll be safe? And Jeremiah says, let me pray about it for, for 10 days. Let me pray about it. And he does. And in chapter 42, verse 19, we get Jeremiah's answer to that question. It's just a small group. You know, the people are living in a destroyed city, but he says, O remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, do not go to Egypt. And here's their response, chapter 43, verse 2, starting in the middle of the verse. All the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go back to Egypt and settle there. And you just shake your head, saying, These people do not learn. They do not get it. All they want to hear is what they already want to hear and so a group of citizens flee to Egypt the remnant that remains and they take Jeremiah with them and there he dies and the tragedy of that that we have to see in the subtext is this these people have lived through the punishment of God the judgment of God that their sins deserve and at the very end they reverse the Exodus its total defeat they revert, reverse the exodus and go back to Egypt. Well, in the next chapters, 46 through 51, we see uh, Jeremiah's prophecies against the nations. I mentioned that that's not chronological, but it gives you a sense of what he was saying about all the other nations, including Babylon, because he prophesied the destruction of Babylon. The destroyer will be destroyed one day. And we see that in in his uh, prophecies. And then in chapter uh, 52, the end of the book, it's a flashback, basically. A recap of the destruction of Jerusalem because that's the main uh, focus point of the book. And the message is that God has brought punishment on his people and that even though God's methods can be hard, his purposes are always pure. He has in mind the purification of his people. And all along the way, Along with the warning, there has been promise. So we leave the book of Jeremiah with a couple of lessons in mind. Number one, God keeps His Word. Delay does not mean denial, either for punishment or blessing. So, if you're going through the storm right now, rejoice in that truth. Delay does not mean denial. God is working for the blessing of His people. But if you're in rebellion against God, fear that truth, punishment will come. Lesson number two, true patriotism does not turn a blind eye to national sin. The true patriot will speak up for righteousness. The godly patriot will remember that the majority can be wrong. They were wrong in Jeremiah's day. The majority is wrong today. We will be increasingly, people of God, the voice in the wilderness calling out for a morality and a righteousness from the word that our nation has left behind. That's going to be our role. We must walk against the flow of our culture, just like Jeremiah. And thirdly, rejoice in the fact that God does restore. The blessings are sure and forever for His people. God has a plan of blessing for His people, Israel. He has a plan of blessing for His people today in Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that truth. No matter what we're going through, we can hold the hand of God and know that He has better in store.